Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Take Me Home, Country Roads. The main subject of tonight's episode is I want to tell you about an experience, actually two experiences that I had approximately a year ago that had the effect of taking me home country roads, if not in reality, at least in my mind. Two things happened very close to each other that took me back to my early days in the church. And I want to share both of those incidents with you tonight. This is another one of those things, like I mentioned yesterday, that I had considered podcasting on because really it was very, very fascinating to me and very impactful to me emotionally when this occurred. But then as fate would have it, my attention was attracted to something else before I got around to podcasting on the subject and I went to something else and then I went to something else and then I went to something else beyond that. And I never got around to telling you about this incident. I've told you about one part of the incident, but I'll tell you the other part tonight, and it's the other part that really is the amazing part, at least to me. But first, I need to make a major announcement. We are still in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Today is Friday, April 24th, 2020, and today is the end of the fifth week that I have been putting up a new podcast every weekday to help those of you, hopefully help those of you in some small way, who are sheltering at home during the middle of this state of emergency. And with everything that's going on and the severe negative impact this pandemic is having on people throughout the world, including members of the church, I had hoped that the leaders of the church would get around to maybe opening up the purse, loosening those purse strings on the $100 billion EPA account and maybe helping out members with something like a stimulus check or something along those lines, some kind of real physical actual assistance. I mean, it's fine to pray and fast to God to turn away the coronavirus. We've talked about that before. It's another thing to actually help people where they are and in the need that they have at the current time. What is it the Book of Mormon says? To lift up the hands that hang down and to strengthen the feeble knees? And as James says in chapter 2 of that book in the New Testament, what good does your faith do you if you've got people who are hungry or naked and you don't give them clothes and food. Even so, faith without works is dead. But I'm happy to report as part of this announcement that yesterday the church did make a huge step in helping the members of the church during this coronavirus pandemic. And that step is that they released another logo. (laughs) I'm not making this up. I actually saw this on my newsfeed that there was a new logo that had been unveiled yesterday on April 23rd, 2020, for the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Except we don't use the word Mormon anymore because that's really important to God. We don't use the word Mormon. So the name of the choir was changed to be, and I always have to stop and think about this because it doesn't flow trippingly on the tongue. It is the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. That's the name of it. The T-Cats, T-C-A-T-S, the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. And what was unveiled yesterday was they've got a new logo. So first off, we've got a new church logo that was presented two weeks ago in General Conference. And now yesterday, the church has been busy producing a second logo for the choir. And honestly, when I saw this on my newsfeed, I thought, you have got to be kidding me, really? This is laughable. This has got to be a joke. This really isn't what the church is busy doing in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic, producing not one logo, but two logos. But yes, it is in fact the case. I went to the church website, like I'm doing right now, and once again, on the homepage, the biggest square at the top is an official announcement of the new church symbol introduced. That's the new logo with Jesus in it. 
And then if you scroll down toward the bottom of the page, you can find a box that says the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square, and then there's a bunch of vertical lines on the left side of that. I think those vertical lines are supposed to represent the pipes on the organ. And that's the new logo. And it says the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square unveils new logo. So yes, it actually is true. This is what the church is doing in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic. They are producing logos all over the place. And if I click on that, there is the news article dated April 23rd, 2020 from Salt Lake City News Release. The Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square unveils new logo. And you can read that article if you like. Obviously, the church is very excited about this new logo in much the same way that they are very excited about the new church logo that was unveiled two weeks ago. Now, something that's interesting, though, to me and something actually that I had not recognized until a listener pointed this out to me is that the church wants to call this new logo, this new logo for the Tabernacle Choir, a logo. They're very comfortable calling it a logo. It's in the headline to this news release. But for some reason, which I'm not sure I know exactly what it is, the church does not want to call its new church logo, the one with Jesus in it, a logo at all. Instead, if you look at that square on the top of the church homepage, it doesn't say new church logo introduced. It says new church symbol introduced. And that is also an official announcement. And the headline of this article, which links to the LDS newsroom, is not the church's new logo emphasizes the centrality of the Savior. No, it is the church's new symbol emphasizes the centrality of the Savior. And throughout the article, it describes the new church logo as a symbol. They don't want to call the new church logo a logo. The first line says, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a new symbol to identify the faith. President Nelson said this new symbol is a continuation of the effort he felt inspired to initiate in August 2018 to focus on the church's divinely revealed name. And then later on in the article, it says this new emblem emphasizes the name of Jesus Christ. So it's a symbol, it's an emblem. The one thing it is not is apparently a logo. At least the church does not want to call it a logo. And then further down in the article, it quotes President Nelson as saying, the symbol will now be used as a visual identifier for official literature, news, and events of the church. Well, when you talk about a visual identifier for official literature, news, and events of the church, that sounds an awful lot like a logo to me. But no, it's not a logo. It is a symbol. It is an emblem. The one thing it is not is a logo. And as I thought about this some more, it's kind of funny because Jesus is known in the New Testament as the Word, at least in the Gospel of John. And the Greek word for word is logos. And that's why Jesus is sometimes called the logos. He is the Word. So we've got a new logo, whatever it is they call it. I'm still going to call it a logo for the church. And the new logo features the logos. It's the logos logo. I don't know why the church doesn't want to call it a logo. But I think if we were to ask Elmo what he thinks of the new church symbol, he might say something like, Elmo loves the Logos logo. (laughs) Okay, never mind. I mean, is it because Jesus is in it that they don't want to call it a logo because putting Jesus in a logo might be somehow demeaning to the image of Jesus? You can see how contradictory this gets and how confusing it can be. If you're going to put Jesus into the new church logo, but you don't want to call it a logo because Jesus is in it, then why are you putting Jesus into the new church logo in the first place? That's all I'm saying. And I do love this image of Jesus that was selected. It is, of course, an image of the Christus statue. And as many people have pointed out,
pointed out, this image here, which pictures Jesus with a robe over one shoulder and the right part of his chest bared, is perhaps the whitest white Jesus in the history of Western civilization. They have used an image of Jesus which violates the BYU honor code in a number of different ways. First off, his hair is not only past his ears, it's down to his shoulders and is going off his shoulders. That's how long it is on both sides. He needs a haircut, at least if he's going to go to his university. <laughs> I mean, if he shows up for class looking like this, he's going to be thrown out in a heartbeat. You know that's true. He's also got facial hair, more than just a mustache that's allowed. He's got a full beard. Nope, that's going to have to go to Jesus. And he's got his entire right side of his chest exposed. That is simply not going to do at all. But he is very well proportioned. It's a beautiful statue. It's a beautiful image. And this Jesus has apparently been working out in the gym. He's sort of a cross between Arnold Freiberg and Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's the superhero Jesus. And what with my love for Marvel Comics, I've got to appreciate that about this particular logo. I mean, this Jesus could probably be a new member of the Avengers, and he could probably hold his own against Wolverine if push came to shove. I love this Jesus. All I can say is three cheers for the new Logos logo. Okay, that's about all I have to say about the new church logos. One for the church and one for the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. Now let's go back to last year. It was around April of 2019, so really about exactly a year ago, and two things happened, one of which I've already talked about, and these things took me back to my early years in the church. The first was that I saw a 70 give a talk in general conference, and I recognized his name. It was Elder Kyle McKay. And as he was speaking, and as I was listening to him, and as I'm looking at his name, I realized that this was my missionary companion in Japan. In fact, he was the first missionary companion that I had in Japan. He was what we would call my trainer, and he was a fantastic missionary. There is nothing negative that I could possibly say about Elder McKay. He was great. If memory serves, he had gone to Bountiful High School. He had been the student body president in his senior year. He had been the quarterback on the football team. He's one of those kind of guys. And we had a great time together in my first assignment in Japan, which was up in the mountains of Japan during January of 1980. And the thing that was kind of unusual about this assignment and this structure of the four missionaries who were in the apartment was that there was Elder McKay and there was me and then there was another senior missionary and another junior missionary. Well, the other senior missionary in the apartment was actually Elder McKay's cousin. His name was Elder Sterling, I think. And Elder Sterling and Elder McKay were cousins and Elder Sterling's junior companion had been my companion while I was at the MTC for two months, he was the guy I hung out with for two straight months. The one I was supposed to be with the entire time, like missionary companions are supposed to be. You never leave each other's side. So we had a great time for the month that I was there in that particular district, my first assignment in Japan. Let me tell you a couple of stories about Elder McKay. First off, when you're a missionary, of course, you're not supposed to have any contact with girls, and we didn't have any contact with girls. But I remember Elder McKay telling me from somebody in Bountiful, Utah, about what kissing a girl is like. And he told me kissing a girl is like sucking on the sweet end of a 30-foot tube. 
<laughs> you know, and when you think about it that way, it's true. And when you think about it that way, it makes it a little bit less appealing to actually want to go around and finding girls to kiss on. And that's a good thing when you're a missionary, because that's one thing you are not supposed to be doing. And one of the reasons you're supposed to stay with your missionary companion at all times to make sure that everybody is on the straight and narrow. Everybody is walking the walk as well as talking the talk. And along those lines, we were, of course, on bicycles in Japan. There was nobody who had cars except for the assistance to the president. Everybody else was on bicycles. And these bicycles are not 10 speeds. They are not really nice bicycles. Instead, these are bicycles that are provided for by the mission. Every district has four bicycles that stay at that apartment. And when a new missionary comes in, they get to ride one of those four bicycles that is already there at the apartment. And these are not 10 speeds. They're not five speeds. They're not three speeds. These are one speed bicycles and they're built like tanks, two-wheeled tanks. And it takes a lot of energy and a lot of work to ride those missionary bicycles around. And of course, after a lot of missionary use, which is daily, you're on those bicycles. Some of those bicycles end up getting dinged, they end up getting bent, they end up getting somewhat broken, though all of them are functional. But you're always going to have the one bike at every missionary apartment that is absolutely the worst bike of the four. And so it was standard practice that whenever a new missionary came into a district, that the other missionaries who remained there would shuffle around the bike so that the new missionary got that fourth bicycle, the worst bicycle of the lot. But these two stories I want to tell you about Elder McKay have to do with bicycles. The first one has to do with me on my bike. I haven't been there that long and I decide that I'm going to sort of have a race with Elder McKay. And I pull ahead of him. Yes, I actually get a lead on him and I am way out ahead of him and I lose sight of him or more accurately put, he loses sight of me. And finally, I stop and I wait for him to catch up and I am out of breath and he comes pedaling up to me as fast as he can and he's out of breath. And he lays into me, verbally, of course, and chews me out for getting out of his sight because that is violating a cardinal mission rule. And he was very upset with me, but, you know, he's a good guy. It didn't last long. It wasn't like he held a grudge. I didn't hold a grudge. I realized he was right. I learned a lesson from that experience. But I remember that story about Elder McKay. He was a cool guy, but he was also a very obedient missionary and a hardworking missionary. And I learned a lot from him in that regard. Another story involving a bicycle has to do with when we were riding home one night. We would go out tracting during the nights. And these are winter nights. Remember, it's January of 1980. It's up in the mountains. There's snow. There's ice on the roads. There's all sorts of things that you need to be careful of when you are riding your bike, especially at night, especially in winter, especially in the mountains of Japan. And one night we are riding home from tracting. And generally we would ride home faster than we rode out. And I remember Elder McKay and I are riding down this road toward home from where we'd been tracting. And there's this place coming up in the road where we have to turn right. And this is a hairpin turn right in order to continue on our way home. And I was on Elder McKay's left and a little bit ahead of him on my bike as we're heading down this road. And I make this sharp turn to the right to get on this road. And unfortunately, Elder McKay apparently wasn't planning on making that right. He was just going to keep going straight on this road and go a different way home with the effect that I ended up cutting right in front of Elder McKay as we're on this road and riding our bikes at a very fast speed. I don't know if it was the ice on the road or if it was just me cutting off Elder McKay abruptly and unexpectedly from his point of view. But I cut him off and he ends up laying his bike down. And he was so cool about it. All I remember is cutting in front of him and hearing behind me 
Elder McKay say, as calmly as if he's taken a walk on a summer's morning, he says, well, looks like I'm going to have to lay this puppy down. And then there was this huge crash and this huge skidding sound. And I turn around as quickly as I can, and he has gotten on top of the side of his bike and riding it in a crouched position like it's a surfboard as it skids down the street for about 50 more feet until it finally comes to a stop. And then he gets off and he picks up his bike and he gets on it and we continue on our way. He was totally cool. I don't get chewed out for that. That was a dumb move on my part. But I don't get chewed out for that. I got chewed out for getting out of his sight on another occasion. Let me tell you one other story here about Elder McKay. And this is kind of a story on me because I'm struggling to learn Japanese. I'm struggling to learn the missionary discussions in Japanese, which we have to have memorized. Now, this was a special set of missionary discussions. It was not simply a translation of the rainbow discussions that everybody else would do. If you went to an English-speaking mission, you had the rainbow discussions. You had to memorize those. If you went to South America or someplace that spoke Spanish, well, then they had a translation of the rainbow discussions that you were supposed to memorize. Ours was unique because the general authority who was over Japan, as well as other areas in Eastern Asia, but the general authority who was over Japan was a Japanese native. It was Elder Yoshihiko Kikuchi. And Elder Yoshihiko Kikuchi had gotten permission from the church to write his own set of missionary discussions for the Japanese missionaries. And this was a bit different than the rainbow discussions. And one of the main ways that it was different is that if you're an English-speaking missionary or a Spanish-speaking missionary, the odds are that you're talking predominantly to people who are already Christian or who already are familiar with the basic story of Jesus in the New Testament. Over in Japan, we're talking predominantly to people who are not Christian and may not have that basic understanding of Jesus in the New Testament. Therefore, the very first lesson that we gave was not about Joseph Smith and the Restoration. Instead, it's about Jesus and giving them the basic elements of the Jesus story from the New Testament up to and including, of course, his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. And what we would do during the day is we would go out and we would street dendo. Dendo is the Japanese word for proselyte. So we would do street contacting, street dendo, and we would find people and hopefully they would want to hear the first discussion. Well, once again, it was very cold. So what we would do if we found people who wanted to hear the first discussion, and there weren't that many, but you know, we usually got a hit or two every day. We would take them back to the church building in order to teach them. And now this church building was not a church building. This is a very small area. There's not a lot of members there. It doesn't have its own church building. Instead, what the church did was it rented a space in an office building, and that's where church meetings were held. And the great thing about being able to find somebody to teach and going to this church space in the office building was that that space was heated. Outside, it's terribly cold. Inside, it's heated. And we could turn on the heat and we could get a break from the cold while we're teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a total win-win kind of situation. And it was definitely a good motivation for us to find people to teach so we could get to a place with heating and warm up for a bit. Anyway, I remember that there were these two young guys. They were students. This is usually the kind of people we ended up teaching were young boy students. They were in their teens. They might have been 16, 17, or 18. I can't tell at this point. But we brought them back and we set them in two folding chairs. We sat opposite them in two folding chairs. And this was my chance to be able to do my best to teach the first discussion. And I spent hours every morning trying to memorize these discussions so I could do my bit in the companionship to teach the gospel. And it wasn't always Elder McKay who had to do it. 
Okay, so finally we're here. And what I'm talking about and what I'm teaching in Japanese to these two guys is I'm teaching about the crucifixion of Jesus and the way that the lesson plan, which is what it was called, the lesson plan, the way the lesson plan framed it is that Jesus was crucified by evil people. Now, the word for evil people in Japanese is akunin. Aku is evil, nin is the suffix that means people. So he was crucified by Aku nin. And I'm going along and I'm doing my best to teach these two young Japanese students about Jesus' crucifixion. And I get to this point and I get a little bit after and I'm going on and all of a sudden I notice that everybody is like smiling and then they're starting to laugh. And that includes Elder McKay. The two Japanese guys and Elder McKay are starting to laugh. They can't hold their laughter back anymore, and they start laughing. And then I stop and I say, well, what is it? What's so funny? And Elder McKay explains to me that I had actually said, not that Jesus was crucified by evil people. I said that Jesus was, <laughs> I said that Jesus was crucified by meat people, M-E-A-T, meat people. Instead of saying akunin, I had said nikunin by accident. So everybody got it except for me because I wasn't aware that I had said Nikunin instead of Akunin. Jesus was crucified by meat people instead of evil people. But the other three picked up on it right away. And so that was a good joke at my expense. Okay, let's get back to April General Conference. And now after all this stuff has gone on, here I see Elder McKay, my first missionary companion in Japan, who is now a general authority, 70, in the LDS church. And it made me reflect. It was one of those moments where you see something like this and it causes you to reflect on your life, not just back to my mission, but to all of my life in between. Because during the time that I have been first a very faithful Mormon and indeed an apologist for the LDS Church and then gone down this path that has led me to where I have become Radio Free Mormon, Elder McKay obviously was pursuing a different path. He was pursuing a more orthodox path. He was pursuing a leadership track that ended up getting him to be a general authority in the LDS church. And I'm sure that the last name did not hurt. But I don't want to be snide about that because I'm sure he would have gotten there on his own merits alone, regardless of what his last name was, or regardless of his relationship to the president of the LDS church, David O. McKay. And I reflected on that and I thought of the Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken. Obviously, I took a different road than the one that Elder McKay took. And here we are, 40 years later, and he is a 70 in the church, and I am Radio Free Mormon. Now, I'm not saying that I am envious of him or that I would like to be a general authority in the LDS church. That would not suit me at all. That would not fit my character. I never fit that mold in the LDS church, which is why I expect I never rose to any positions of leadership. A person who is going to eventually become Radio Free Mormon is not somebody who's going to rise very high in the LDS church. But it did make me think about how it is that over the past 40 years we have taken different roads and thereby ended up at completely different poles of Mormonism. And I will also say that I'm quite certain that Elder McKay is probably still just as great a guy now as he was back then. And he's probably just as great a general authority to work with as he was a trainer missionary in Japan. Here's to you, Elder McKay, my heartiest congratulations. But there was something else that happened at this very same time in April of 2019 that made me think once again about this idea of the road not taken. And here's how it happened, okay? I have mentioned before about my home teacher. His name is Keith, and I've talked about what a great Mormon he is, what a great Latter-day Saint he is, that we can have discussions about things that you don't talk about in church. And he is happy to do that. He is happy to hear me 
talk about the church the way I talk about the church. In fact, he listens to the podcast. And we were having a discussion just earlier this week on the phone, and we were talking about some aspect of Mormonism or other that I had covered in my podcast. And I'm talking about it from my point of view. He's talking about it from his point of view, which is, of course, a more defensive point of view for the church. And usually, I'm much more diplomatic. But during this conversation, for whatever reason, I was kind of abrupt with him. We weren't yelling or calling each other names or anything like that. But I was more abrupt with him than I usually am. And I actually apologized to him. I recognized it and I said, hey, Keith, I'm sorry. I think I've been being too abrupt with you. And he says, no, 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 not at all, of course. And then he says, you know, what the great thing is, is that I can have conversations with you that I can't have with anybody else in the church. And I expect that's true, but the remarkable thing is that he appreciates it. Most members of the church would run as fast as they could to get away from a conversation like the ones I have with Keith. He actually enjoys them. So my hat's off to you, Keith. But I bring up Keith because in April of 2019, he texts me a link to a podcast. And I think the podcast was named This Is My Gospel. I had never heard of it before. I'd never listened to it before. But he said there's a guy being interviewed on this podcast. And I think you might be interested in it, Radio Free Mormon. Because Keith knows my background. He knows I went to the University of Texas at Austin back in the 1980s. And the guy who's being interviewed on this went to the University of Texas at Austin back in the 1980s. And he says, well, you know, there's a student ward. Maybe you knew this guy. Why don't you listen to this? Maybe you'll know him. So I opened the podcast. I started listening. And here's this guy talking. Now, I don't recognize his voice, but his name is Dusty Smith. Well, I don't know anybody named Dusty Smith. I'm racking my brain. I mean, it's probably like me with pretty much everybody in any given ward or group of people. There's a small group of people that you know really well. There's another group of people that you might know or might remember their names, but you don't know them really well. And then there's probably half of the people or a third of the people that you don't know at all and you wouldn't remember them even if they came up and shook your hand. So Dusty Smith, I don't recognize the name. He's talking. I don't recognize his voice. And as he's talking, I'm not really putting two and two together. So Maybe he was at the university ward at a time I wasn't. Maybe he was a member of this group that I didn't know. But then he goes on and he starts talking more and more. And I start picking up details of his story. And he talks about how it was that he went on a mission for two years back in the 1980s down to a country in South America. And of course, you know, it seemed like half of the people who were called on missions went to South America. This doesn't do anything for me. This isn't a clue that I can pick up on. But then he talks about having gone to law school. Wait a second, he went to law school. I went to law school at the University of Texas at Austin. Was he a member of the church there? I rifle in my memory through the very few members of the church who were at law school when I was there at law school. Nope, Dusty Smith was not one of them. But then he says he didn't go to law school in Texas. He went to law school up in Michigan. I think it was Michigan. It was one of those states up there. If it wasn't Michigan, it was Wisconsin or Minnesota. But I believe it was Michigan. And all of a sudden, it tripped for me. I knew who this guy was. But I didn't know him by the name Dusty Smith. I knew him by a different name. He went by a completely different name, both first and last, back when I knew him in Austin, Texas in the 1980s. And the name I knew him by, I'll just give his first name here, was Steve. And his last name was not Smith. It was a completely different name. So that's why the name Dusty Smith didn't clue me in. And it wasn't until he started talking about going to this law school up in Michigan that I realized this is Steve. And not only did I know him, he was my absolute best friend in the church during the 1980s. We were like brothers. And the way we got to know each other is first off, Steve has, or I'll just say Dusty, I'll use his name. He prefers the name Dusty. Dusty has an abrasive sense of humor. 
He's very intelligent, but he's very abrasive in the way he comes off to other people. And he had just joined the church. He's a new kid at the student ward at the University of Texas at Austin. This is back in, oh, I think the first half of the 1980s. I can't remember exactly when, but it might be 1983. It might be 1984. Anyway, most everybody was kind of put off by Dusty because of the way he presented himself and the way he seemed to have no filter on his mouth. And nobody really wanted to hang around him. He's a new member. We're supposed to be fellowshipping him and everything, but he's not making it easy. And everybody's kind of cringing when he comes into the church. Well, there was a group of us, a small group of friends who were going over on campus to watch a movie. And I believe it was Rebel Without a Cause that they were playing on campus at the theater there. And this thought came to me very clearly. I didn't hear a voice. It was an impression. And the impression that I got was, I need to invite Dusty. Because even though he's abrasive, we need to fellowship this guy. He's a member of the church. He's one of God's children. We need to try and bring him into the group and include him and not exclude him by not inviting him. So first off, I knew I had to talk to my friends because they weren't going to be thrilled with this idea. And I said, I think we need to invite Dusty. And they didn't like the idea. And I said, and I told them what I told you. We need to be more inclusive. We need to fellowship this guy. I know he's rough around the edges, but still. And they had to agree with it. Of course, they had to agree with it. So I invited Dusty. He seemed surprised. He was very happy to go. We all went to this movie together. We had a good time. And that was the start of an incredible friendship that I had with Dusty during the 1980s. There are maybe in a person's life a handful of experiences where you meet somebody who's not just a friend, but you feel a special connection to them. You relate in a very special way. You feel like brothers. And this is how I felt about Dusty, and I think it's how he felt about me. Anyway, we would hang out together. We would have a great time. He was caustic to me. I was caustic to him. That was part of our relationship. We would make merciless fun of each other and then laugh at each other's expense. I remember once when we were in Austin, Texas, and we were attending a young adult conference of some sort that we had put together at a local hotel, and we had speakers come in, and we had young adults who would attend from different wards and different stakes around the area, and we would be in attendance and listen to these speakers talk about whatever subject it was they were going to talk about. And in this particular session, me and Dusty are seated next to each other. We're right on the very front row, and the man who is speaking is actually a counselor in the stake presidency. His name was Brother Judd. He was a very, very good speaker. He was a strong speaker, and we liked him a lot. And we're sitting there in this crowded room. We're in the front, and of course, we're seated at tables because this isn't a hotel. This isn't a normal church setting. We're at tables, and they have glasses of water that are set up in front of every chair. We each have a glass of water in front of us, and we're taking sips of water while we're listening to Brother Judd speak about probably Joseph Smith. That was like his favorite thing to talk about was Joseph Smith. So he's up there. He's probably five, maybe 10 feet away from us. Once again, we're on the front row. There's nothing between us except this table, which has the glasses of water on it. We're taking sips of water while we're listening to Brother Judd. And Dusty, who was immediately to my left, takes a big drink of water. And when he does it, he ends up hitting the rim of this glass of water on his upper teeth. <laughs> on his upper teeth. And it makes this big clinking sound when the glass hits his teeth. And not only that, it stops the glass so abruptly as he was taking the swig that all the water in the glass now comes flying out of the glass and all over Dusty's front. Well, this was absolutely too funny to be able to hold the laughter down. And I'm doing my best. I mean, Brother Judd is up there. It's a packed room. He's talking about Joseph Smith. He's 10 feet away from us at the most. There's no way I'm going to be able to hide from Brother Judd that I'm laughing if I start laughing. So I'm trying to hold it in. Dusty's trying to hold in his laughter because he sees me laughing. He knows it's funny. And we end up both being mutually, completely unsuccessful in holding in the laughter. And we are dying laughing. So we end up causing this huge disruption in the middle of 
Brother Judd's testimony of Joseph Smith. And we had to go up immediately to him afterward and apologize to him. And to his credit, Brother Judd started laughing and he realized what was going on. I don't think he was too happy with us at the beginning, but he realized what the situation was and he expected that if he'd known what was going on, he probably would have laughed too. So that's me and Dusty in a nutshell. Now, in the middle of the 1980s, Dusty ends up leaving for two years to go on his mission. He goes south of the border, right? Just like this Dusty Smith in the interview talks about going south of the border on his mission. He goes south of the border. He's gone for two years. He comes back. He's not there in Austin very long after that that I can recall. But I remember that he did get married to a gal who was from south of the border. I don't remember if he met her on his mission. He might have. She might have been a sister missionary from that same country. But he comes back, he's got a wife, they have a child, and it seems like in very quick order, Dusty ends up going to law school. And I'm in law school myself at this point from 1986 to 1989 at UT, but he gets accepted into a law school that is up in Michigan. And so once again, he leaves the scene. So I lose him for two years on his mission, my best friend. Then he comes back briefly and then I lose him because he has to move out of state to Michigan to go to law school. And I'm sort of remembering the name Cooley in association with the name of the law school. I can't remember it exactly. All I know is that he's up there for three years in law school. And it's while he's up there in law school that he ends up leaving the church. And I was very, very upset about it. And I remember specifically what it was that threw him for a loop. You may have heard me talk about in prior episodes, a friend of mine who got thrown for a loop by the 1832 account of the first vision. Well, that is Dusty, that's the guy I was talking about. He got thrown for such a loop in the fact that in the 1832 account, Joseph Smith mentioned seeing only one being instead of two beings, and that one being was Jesus Christ. He was totally floored by this, and it ended up propelling him out of the church. Of course, this is happening in Michigan. I'm in Texas. I don't know about it until he's telling me about it afterward on the phone, and I remember trying to talk to him. Remember, this is Radio Free Mormon back in the 1980s when I am the master apologist. I'm the guy who's the TBM, I'm the defender of the faith, and I know all the answers for why it is that the 1832 account is not a problem to Joseph Smith's prophetic claims. But I wasn't able to talk with him very much on the phone, and by that I mean he wasn't picking up on what I was laying down, and I remember he wasn't giving me a chance really to explain my position, so I sat down and I wrote out a multi-page letter to him on the subject explaining why this was not a problem. I mailed it to him. I'm sure he got it. I'm sure he read it. I know it made absolutely no difference to him. He was gone. He was out of the church. It was bye-bye Dusty and I was heartsick over this. Not only was he out of my life, he's out of the church and nothing I can do as much as I've studied, as much time and effort and research as I put into this whole apologetic gig, I can't get him back. I can't save him. I can't rescue him. So now, Fast forward to 2019, when I'm listening to this interview of Dusty, I realize who it is, and he's telling the story about how it was that he came back to the church, that he was an anti-Mormon for many, many years, and now he's come back to the church for a series of what are to him miraculous events, and he is telling the story at firesides throughout Utah and even other states on pretty much every single weekend, sometimes two times a week. He's out giving firesides. He's in huge demand. He's a popular speaker. And at every one of these firesides, he's telling his story about how he used to be a member of the church back in Texas in the 1980s, how he left the church. Now, he doesn't mention the First Vision account in any of the tellings of his story that I've heard. 
That's what I recollect as being the impetus for him leaving the church. I don't know if he remembers it exactly the same way. Anyway, it doesn't come up in his recountings. But as I say, I listened to him tell his story on this podcast, which once again was titled, This is the Gospel. I found out that you can look him up on YouTube and you can get videos of him where he is sharing his story. Just Google Dusty Smith Mormon or Dusty Smith LDS and you will find those videos and you can hear him tell in his own voice his own story. There's actually a great time when he appears on the Three Mormons channel and he's seated between two guys. One of them is Kwaku and one of them is this other guy who I, I don't know his name. He's not as famous as Kwaku. Kwaku is like Davy Jones and the Monkeys. He's the most popular one of the group. <laughs> But if you watch Dusty seated between these two guys at Three Mormons and how he's telling a story and how he's relating to those two guys, one on either side, you will see exactly the kind of character that he is and that he was. He's still the same kind of guy that he used to be back then. He's very caustic. He'll make fun of people at the drop of a hat. He's very good at it. He's very practiced at it. And what you'll see him doing is immediately sensing the atmosphere in the room and the two people that he's talking with and who the person is that's going to be the butt of his jokes. And instinctively, he picks Kwaku. Kwaku's going to be the guy who's going to be the butt of his jokes. And it's great watching it because he plays off both of these guys masterfully. He's very, very good at public speaking. He's very, very good at relating to a group of people. I taught classes in churches against the Mormon church. I Well, you were that guy. Like, when I was a Methodist, they brought in a man who was also bald, and he, uh, he told us about... Wasn't you? At this time, he... Might you were been. much younger then. <laughs> I was better looking, too. You were much younger then. <laughs> um... Uh. Oh, wait a second. Dusty does actually get around to mentioning the first vision, among other issues, later on in this interview. He sets up how he sets up really well how difficult and problematic this is an issue with these different accounts of the first vision, but he never actually gets around to answering why it is that that's not a problem anymore. Play the tape. Look yeah. at what Joseph did here. Look at what this happened here. I, you know, and um, you would have loved right. And, and w was this just a couple of things, or was it like? Joseph polygamy, blacks in the priesthood, women in the priesthood, oh, had colon, heavenly stuff. mother. Do you want to know one of the biggest arguments that I used against was all the various versions of the first vision? Mm -hmm. I because I would I because I would tell I would tell people on the board, you put a witness on the stand. I mean, I'm a litigator, right? You put a witness on the stand, and I have won more trials than I can shake a stick at by them having more than one story. Two stories. I can, I can, I can, I can destroy a witness with two stories. And Joseph has nine. Yeah. Oh, I can destroy his story. I could destroy Joseph on the witness. And I would tell that to Mike. Yeah. You know. But that was one of my biggest arguments. The archaeology was another one. You know. And now he's written a book about his experience. I think it's called The Trial of Faith because he went to be a lawyer. You know, he came back to the church. His faith was tried. It's a trial of faith. It's a nice play on words. And not only that, he talked to Elder Uchtdorf. Back around 2016, this is when he's in the process of coming back to the church. He ends up rejoining the church, and Elder Uchtdorf tells his story in general conference in the priesthood session of October 2016. It's in his talk titled, Learn from Alma and Amulek. But instead of calling him Dusty, or instead of calling him Steve, he once again follows the tradition, for whatever reason that Mormons have, of not using a person's real name. Instead, he calls him David. And he tells his story. And I'm going to play Elder Uchtdorf telling Dusty's story here in a second. But before that, I want to read 
his story here, not necessarily in his own words. If you want to get his own words, go ahead and go to YouTube and listen to him tell a story. It's a fascinating story. It is a multi-step process of coincidences, unlikely coincidences that end up leading him back to the church. And his story was featured at LDS Living in a story published September 7th, 2018. The title of the story is The Miracles That Led One Attorney to Become a Member of the Church He Hated. And I want to just go through this article really, really quick so you'll get a flavor for his story. And of course, it starts off with his contact with Dieter Uchtdorf, who was president Uchtdorf at the time. Here's how it starts. Is this a prank? Is this a prank? Dusty Smith wondered. They give his first name here, Steve, and then they put Dusty in quotes because that's a nickname. Steve Dusty Smith wondered. He was surprised and confused as he listened to the woman on the phone telling him that President Dieter F. Uchtdorf, then second counselor in the first presidency, wanted to speak with him. But once the distinct, accented voice came through the other end of the line, Smith knew it wasn't a joke. He was speaking to an apostle. And President Uchtdorf had just one question for Smith. Would he share his story, i.e., would Dusty share Dusty's story with President Uchtdorf? Smith, that's Dusty, Smith gave a brief overview of the last quarter century of his life and his unexpected journey of finding the church, losing his testimony, actively fighting against the church, and then returning to the gospel once more. When he finished, President Uchtdorf asked, Is that the whole story? Smith recalls, I said, No, sir. That's just the Reader's Digest condensed version. I figured you're a busy man. And Elder Uchtdorf said, I want to hear your whole story. We have ways of making you talk. <laughs> I added that last part. Okay, so it goes on, talking about finding the gospel. This is how he got converted to the gospel in the first place. Dusty, with a Catholic grandfather, a Baptist grandmother, and a Lutheran mother, Dusty Smith couldn't help but believe in God. However, growing up attending three churches that preached differing beliefs left him confused about who that God was. But Smith cherished his face. You know, instead of Smith, I'm going to say Dusty. I'm just going to put Dusty here instead of Smith because I think that's a little more personal. And I've been talking about Dusty, so you'll know who it is it's talking about. But Dusty cherished his faith, praying, studying, and attending church until one day in 1980, I'm still on my mission in Japan. I'm still a companion with Elder McKay. Until one day in 1980 when he received a phone call from a good friend. The friend informed him that a sweet 13-year-old girl Dusty knew, like a sister, had died after she ran into a glass door and a piece of glass pierced her neck. Ugh. I can't tell you how angry I was at God, Dusty says. I didn't stop believing in him, but I wasn't real happy with him. 37 years later, that incident still brings tears to my eyes. I still see that little girl. So obviously a very traumatic incident. And I think I remember Dusty mentioning that, at least at one point back in the 1980s to me. Dusty couldn't make sense of how a beautiful, smart girl with the whole world in front of her was dead while mass murderers like Ted Bundy, another Mormon, by the way, could still be alive. Smith stopped praying. He stopped reading. He stopped attending church. But he could not stop believing. Don't stop believing. Three years later, however, Dusty discovered something that renewed his hope in God. After graduating from the University of Texas, that should say the University of Texas at Austin, a brief error there by LDS Living, Dusty had gone home to visit his parents, and he was searching for something to read to help pass the time. That's when a book fell off a shelf in his room, one he'd never seen before, the Book of Mormon. You know, this isn't the first time I've heard this kind of story before. I have definitely heard other people talk about the Book of Mormon falling off of bookshelves at opportune moments. I don't know what it is with the Book of Mormon. People need to be more careful putting them away. He later learned it had been given to his mother while she was on a trip to Salt Lake City and she had stored it untouched 
in his room. So he's in his room and all of a sudden a book falls off the shelf, which is kind of unusual. He picks it up. Hey, it's the Book of Mormon. I happened to open up the book to third Nephi, Dusty says. I read about Jesus Christ's visit to the Americas and I went, whoa, so he visited here? That would make sense. And then we have a nice picture of Dusty in front of the Salt Lake City Temple in winter going on with the article. Dusty was so impressed by what he read that he went straight to the phone book to look up the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It listed wards and stakes. That meant nothing to me, but it was lunchtime, so I called the stake. Dusty recalls with a laugh. The stake president, who had briefly stopped in his office. Okay, so here's the second coincidence. The first coincidence is the Book of Mormon falls off of the shelf at his parents' house. The second coincidence is the stake president happens to be there to pick up the phone when he calls. The stake president, who had briefly stopped in his office to pick up something he had forgotten, just happened to be there to answer Dusty's call and connected him with the missionaries. Immediately, the teachings of the gospel resonated with Dusty, explaining questions and dreams he had had since childhood. When I was a kid, elementary school age, I used to have this recurring dream every night for a year, Dusty says. In the dream, Peter, James, and John were in heaven, walking away from him as the clouds parted and a ladder descended from the heavens leading to earth. Then a voice came speaking to the three men who nodded and began descending the ladder. I never understood that dream until I read about the Melchizedek priesthood and how Peter, James, and John came down and restored it to earth, Dusty says. Suddenly, the nature of God, the plan of salvation, Dusty's purpose on earth, all of it, made sense. Now, the next section is called Getting Baptized and Losing Faith. In April 1983, the missionaries baptized Dusty, a member of the church. But this new chapter in his life didn't come without sacrifice. So it's April 1983. Yeah, it's 83, it's 84. It's right during that time period when it was that I first met Dusty. The article goes on quoting Dusty. I gave up so much to become LDS. I had been dating a girl for two years and she left me, he says. My family disowned me. Our relationship took a beating. But Dusty's conviction to the gospel was enough to confirm this was the right choice for him. Just a year later, and already in his mid-twenties, Dusty meets an incredible young man at the University of Texas at Austin who invites him to go see a movie called Rebel Without a Cause. No, that's not in the article, but that's when it happened. Just a year later and already in his mid-twenties, Smith, Dusty, excuse me, had no plans to serve a mission, no funds, a new fiancé, and ambitions to become an attorney. I was just a dance major at this time. I didn't go to law school till the last half of the 80s. That's me. But one day in 1984, while sitting in sacrament meeting, this would have been a sacrament meeting where I was present. It would have been at the student ward at UT. But one day in 1984, while sitting in sacrament meeting, Dusty says, I just felt this presence, this feeling come over me. And it said, you need to go on a mission. So I quit my job, left my fiance and served a mission. Okay, that's when he went south of the border for two years. That's when I lost him to his mission. And here's a picture of Dusty with his missionary companion and two sister missionaries, it looks like, down in South America. Despite acting immediately on his prompting, Dusty almost returned from his mission before it even began. When I was in the MTC, my family was against me being there. My fiancé was against me being there. I felt all alone. Hey, Dusty, remember me? Okay, going on. I went to a payphone and I called the church headquarters. I said to the lady that answered, if nobody cares that I'm a missionary, I may as well go back home. Nobody cares I'm here. She said, could you hold please? A few minutes later, a baritone voice says, Elder, my name is L. Tom Perry. If nobody else cares, I do. Be my pen pal. Won't you be my pen pal? So apparently, <laughs> so as a result of this, Dusty gets to be pen pals with Apostle L. Tom Perry. 
Dusty would need Elder Perry's letters of encouragement throughout his two-year mission in Honduras. That's where he went, Honduras. A time during which his fiancée married another man and his parents divorced. Ow. About the changes in his family, Dusty notes, that was a trip. I am listening to a letter cassette and my parents are saying, well, it's a great day today, son. The weather is great. We're doing great. I'll catch up with you in a day or two. Click, click. Son, we're getting divorced. I'm not entirely sure what that click, click sound effect means, but it's written into the article. With his pen pal, i.e. L. Tom Perry, sending support from church headquarters, Dusty made it through his mission, and life took a positive turn when he got home. He dated and married a woman he met on his mission, yep, began attending Western Michigan University Cooley Law School, that was it, Cooley Law School, and it was in Michigan, full-time, and started a full-time job to pay his way through, a feat unheard of for those in rigorous law programs. I remember talking to him on the phone about this and how he had this incredibly difficult schedule that he had to do. And I said, I can't believe you can do that. I could never do that. And I remember Dusty saying, hey, nobody thinks they can do it until they have to do it. You could do it if you had to. It was during this time that Dusty attended the Hill Camorra pageant in Palmyra, New York. There were a lot of anti-Mormon protesters around, he recalls, and I debated with them. That was my third year of law school. I came back from that wanting to be the smartest Mormon ever so I could debate with these folks and show them the error of their ways. But the more I studied, the more I discovered things that I didn't believe and hadn't heard before. One of those, I guess, was the 1832 account of the first vision. Gradually, Dusty descended into a spiral of anti-Latter-day Saint literature well, I guess you can't even say anti-Mormon literature anymore, anti-Latter-day Saint literature, and disillusionment, angry toward the faith he had sacrificed his family, a fiancé, and two years of his life to join. Dusty poignantly recalls the exact day, November 11th, 1989, when he lost his testimony of the church. The next section is called Fighting Against the Church. After losing his faith, Dusty not only stopped attending church, but asked for his name to be removed from membership records. I spent from 1989 on battling against the church. I hated the church. It had deceived me. It had broken up my family. It had cost me so much, Dusty says. Dusty joined several online debate boards using his skills as a litigator to tear down Latter-day Saint beliefs. He taught classes in other churches demonstrating why he believed the church was false and deceptive. I was very vocally anti-Mormon, he says. So I guess it's okay if Dusty says anti-Mormon. Even while actively fighting against Latter-day Saint beliefs, however, Dusty's connection to the church never fully disappeared. On one debate board, he met a member of the church named Mike. Despite debating viciously against one another, the two became friends. Mike kept saying, you'll be LDS someday, Dusty remembers. At the time, Mike's insistence seemed not only impossible, but insane. Mike didn't give up on Dusty, however. Every week beginning in 1999, so this is 10 years later now, every week beginning in 1999, he put my name in the temple, Dusty recalls, his voice breaking with emotion. By 2005, the deep hatred Dusty felt for the church began to ebb. I started to feel a pull to come back, he says, but after attending church a few times, Dusty still felt he couldn't belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He could not receive a renewed testimony of those things he once knew. He still felt the pain that being a member of the church had brought into his life, but he could not shake that pull from the spirit. In 2009, while Dusty was dreadfully ill with the swine flu, his son brought two visitors into his home, missionaries who had just knocked on the door. Though Dusty told them they were not wanted, the elders offered to give him a blessing. At the time, the swine flu pandemic had terrified people around the nation. But here were these two young strangers willing to love him, willing to bless him, willing to try to heal him, willing to go to other people's houses and perhaps infect them. 
No, that's not in the article, but boy, does that seem apropos right now. And it touched something inside him, so Dusty agreed. They gave me the blessing. I was healed right then, Dusty says. So this is a miraculous healing he's reporting. I got out of bed and walked them down the stairs. That seems strange. Why are you walking Mormon missionaries out of your house right after they've miraculously healed you so that you could get out of bed? It's like, thanks for healing me, guys, but get the hell out of my house. After the blessing, Dusty tried attending church again and even met with the stake president. But when he learned he would need to undergo a church hearing to be eligible for rebaptism, he walked away, feeling it was unfair to put him on trial when he felt he had done nothing wrong. Now, that strikes me as a little bit unusual. Maybe that's standard procedure, but it sounds like he had already removed his name from the records of the church. Not sure why he has to go through a trial in order to get rebaptized. Maybe that's the way things are done. Or maybe that's just the way the stake president told him it needed to go. But he says he felt he had done nothing wrong, and that put him off of his feed. But the pull never went away. Dusty says, finding a testimony again. Now here, the coincidences start piling up fast and furious. I will go quickly. During his years of fighting against the church, Dusty and his first wife divorced. But by 2014, Dusty was happily Catholic, happily living in a historic district in Dallas, Texas, and happily remarried. That year, his wife Susan had been offered a promotion in Baltimore if she made it through the vetting process. With Dusty working as a managing attorney in Texas, the prospect of a promotion that would take his wife so far away from him was bittersweet. He called up his good friend, Radio Free Mormon. No, he just forgets about me. Thanks a lot, Dusty. No, he calls up his good friend, Mike, this guy he met on the message board, asking him to pray for them and to put Susan's name in the temple. As a joke, Dusty added, however, Mike, if God really wants me to be LDS again, he will send her to Salt Lake. So here's the story of a challenge for God that's not supposed to have a snowball's chance in hell of ever actually happening, and of course it's going to happen. It is a story heard almost as frequently in the LDS Church as copies of the Book of Mormon falling unexpectedly on the floor. Dusty continues, There wasn't a position open in Salt Lake, so I felt pretty comfortable saying that. But the very next day, the person in Salt Lake retires, and my wife's paperwork is transferred from Baltimore to Salt Lake, and she is hired with no vetting. I called Mike and said, You are not going to believe this. Susan is going to Salt Lake. And Mike says, well, you know what you told God. When Dusty explained that he had only been joking, Mike quipped, God wasn't. Ooh, nice one, Mike. Game set and match. After this exchange, Dusty felt shaken and reawakened to the possibility of returning to the church. I hit my knees and said, okay, God, you want me to be LDS again? Fine, but you've got to do your part. Now, this really isn't fair for Dusty. He already set one challenge for God to have his wife transferred not to Baltimore where she was being vetted, but to Salt Lake where she had no chance of being transferred because there was no position open at the time. God does that, and now Dusty is changing the rules on God. That's not fair. That's not kosher. That's not cricket, Dusty. I'm just saying. I hit my knees and said, okay, God, you want me to be LDS again? Fine, but you've got to do your part. I thought he'd already done his part, Dusty. I don't have a testimony, and I have these issues that I need answers to. After listing all his questions and doubts, Dusty watched in awe during the following days. And here's a nice picture of Dusty being baptized or rebaptized. I thought you weren't supposed to take pictures, but anyway, here's a picture of that. He recalls, one by one, I would wake up in the middle of the night with an answer every single night. One of my issues was the lack of archaeological evidence of the Book of Mormon, which is, of course, a problem that many people have with the LDS Church. There is basically no archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. But Dusty gets an answer to this, and he gets it from God. What's the answer? I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. I'd like to know what the answer is to that question that gets him to come back to the church and resolves the issue for him. One night, God said to me, does the fact that you can walk the streets of Jerusalem make the Bible true? And I said, no. He said, but what if somebody uncovered a sign tomorrow that said, welcome to Zarahemla, population 
420. Yes, it says the number 420. <laughs> I don't know what they're smoking in Zarahemla, but the population is 420. What would that do to the Book of Mormon? In other words, this is God asking him, if somebody found a sign that identified the city of Zarahemla, what would that do to the Book of Mormon? And I said, then it would make it true. But he said, then where would be your faith? And that's the end of the story. That's not exactly what I was expecting. Basically, what it's saying is, I have an issue that there's no archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. I have a dream in which God answers the question for me. And the way God answers the question is saying, yeah, there's no archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. You got to have faith. Well, with all due respect to God, I've got to say this is the worst answer to any Book of Mormon question or any religious question that I have ever heard in my life. So the less evidence that supports your religious beliefs, the better, because the less evidence you have, the more faith you're going to need. Right, God? Got it. And I'm getting the idea that all of his other issues probably get resolved in a similar way. Still, Dusty had other questions about Joseph Smith's life, treasure-seeking, polygamy, and other difficult topics in church history. These issues were addressed as well. One night, Dusty recalls, God said, Okay, Mr. Attorney, if you are... Well, at least, at least God is respectful. Okay, Mr. Attorney, if you are so smart, who would you choose to be a prophet? You who doesn't believe anything. A doctor who needs proof? What? A doctor who needs proof? Like, would you choose a doctor who needs proof? I get it now. But oops, wait a second. Maybe God has forgotten whom he has called to be the prophet and president of the church today and what his career was. I, this is still God speaking in the first person to Dusty in a dream, I happened to choose a young boy who could accept the impossible, who could dream the unimaginable. That's the kind of person who was needed to be able to accept and to believe the visions he was seeing and act on the voices he was hearing. Would you have? You have spent 26 years fighting against it. You know, I think I'm starting to discern a decidedly anti-intellectual bent on the part of God. It's better not to have any evidence to support your religious beliefs, and it's also better not to have any education if you want God to speak with you and call you as a prophet. No wonder I never fit into this church. These answers humble Dusty, opening his eyes to the fact that no matter how much he searched, researched, and debated online, these answers could come only from his heavenly father. So I guess he's agreeing with Elder Oaks, who famously said about a year ago that research is not the answer. One by one, his questions fell away until on March 16, 2015, he awoke with his testimony alive and strong. In my mind, I could see the Lord. And he walks up to me and says, okay, I have kept your testimony warm and safe. This time, pal, take care of it. No, he didn't say pal. He just said, this time, take care of it. Dusty recalls the Lord cupping his hands around the testimony and placing it on Dusty's heart. He held it like a living thing. It's a living thing. He held it like a living thing when he gave it back to me. And I realized that it is a living thing. And if you don't feed it and nourish it and nurture it, it will die. Smith returned to the same stake president he had met with in 2009, asking to be rebaptized, knowing he would face a church hearing. But the difference is this time, because I had my testimony back, I was willing to do whatever it takes. It's cool when you know you have to have a church court, but everyone is rooting for you. I imagine that's not the way Bill Real felt in his church court. Less than a week after his church court, Dusty was once again baptized a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yay! Now, meeting President Uchtdorf. You see how this story ends where it began. Before his baptism, while he was visiting his wife in Salt Lake City during General Conference and Easter weekend, Dusty had a strong prompting. He needed to move to Salt Lake City. The only problem, so I guess his wife is still there. She's already there in Salt Lake City. She'd already been transferred there sometime before. The only problem was that Susan was a born and raised Texan 
and Dusty didn't know how she would respond to the news. When Dusty broached the topic, Susan admitted, I haven't known how to break this to you, but I want to live here from now on. I don't want to go back to Texas. Maybe there was some discussion between them about her going back to Texas, and his moving to Texas would cement the deal, and they'd be stuck in Salt Lake City. That was the issue. Okay, I get it. But there was still another problem. Their historic house in Dallas, built in 1929, was riddled with foundation problems and nearly every other problem you can imagine. It was virtually unsellable. Undaunted, Susan responded, We'll think of something. If the Lord wants you here, something will happen. Oh, and here's a picture of the house. Wow, that looks like a really nice house. Soon thereafter, Dusty received a knock on his door. A complete stranger offered to buy his house for more than its value. Well, there's another coincidence. It could have been one of the three Nephites. You never know. Even after Dusty explained the foundation problems, the man insisted on buying the house. Yet, on a later trip to Dallas, when Dusty returned to his old home, he learned that the buyer of the house had disappeared. Yeah, it was one of the three Nephites. See, I told you that the buyer of the house had disappeared and the house was in foreclosure. For the Smiths, the sale of the home was a sign and a miracle. When the Lord wants you someplace, he wants you someplace, Dusty affirms. It was in 2016 that he received the phone call from then-President Dieter F. Uchtdorf. Poor Dieter. He has to be referred to over and over again in this article as then-president. They may as well say ex-president, Dieter F. Uchtdorf, and an invitation to meet the apostle in person. During their meeting, President Uchtdorf asked for permission to relate Dusty's story in the priesthood session of the October 2016 General Conference. In his talk titled, Learning from Alma and Amulek, which actually is another error because on the church's website, it's not called Learning from Alma and Amulek. It's actually called Learn from Alma and Amulek. But anyway, in his talk, President Uchtdorf said, I was touched by the journey of one brother who asked himself, when the Lord calls, will I hear? I will call this fine brother David. David converted to the church some 30 years ago. He served a mission and then attended law school. While he was studying and working to support a young family, he came across some information about the church that confused him. The more he read these negative materials, the more unsettled he became. Eventually, he asked to have his name removed from the records of the church. From that time on, like Alma in his rebellious days, David spent a great deal of time debating with members of the church, engaging in online conversations with the purpose of challenging their beliefs. He was very good at this. One of the members he debated with, I will call Jacob. Jacob was always kind and respectful to David, but he was also firm in his defense of the church. Over the years, David and Jacob developed a mutual respect and friendship. What David did not know is that Jacob was praying for David and did so faithful, faithfully for more than a decade. He even placed his friend's name for prayer in the temples of the Lord and hoped that David's heart would be softened. Over time, slowly, David did change. He began to remember with fondness the spiritual experiences he once had. 
And he remembered the happiness he had felt when he was a member of the church. Like Alma, David had not completely forgotten the gospel truth he had once embraced. And like Amalek, David felt the Lord reaching out to him. David was now a partner in a law firm, a prestigious job. He had developed a reputation as a critic of the church, and he had too much pride to ask to be readmitted. Nevertheless, he continued to feel the pull of the shepherd. He took to heart the scripture, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. He prayed, Dear God, I want to be a Latter-day Saint again, but I have questions that need answers. He began to listen to the whisperings of the Spirit and to inspired answers of friends as he never had before. One after another, his doubts turned to faith until finally he realized that once again he could feel a testimony of Jesus Christ and his restored church. At that point, he knew that he would be able to overcome his pride and do whatever it took to be accepted back into the church. Eventually, David entered the waters of baptism and then began counting down the days until he could have his blessings restored. I'm happy to report that this past summer, David's blessings were restored to him. He is again fully participating in the church and serving as a gospel doctrine teacher in his ward. He takes every opportunity to speak to others about his transformation, to heal the damage he caused, and to bear testimony of the gospel and the church of Jesus Christ. So that's from Elder Uchtdorf's talk. Shortly after sharing this incredible story, President Uchtdorf, whoops, they don't say then-president or ex-president Uchtdorf, that's another slip in the story. Shortly after sharing this incredible story, President Uchtdorf ordained Dusty a high priest. Before the ordination, he asked if he could speak with Dusty and his wife. While Dusty was expecting some form of apostolic guidance, he was surprised when President Uchtdorf took 30 minutes to talk to Susan who wasn't a member of the church. Oh, okay, so Susan, of course, she's not a member of the church. She was Catholic. He told her, bring what you have, and we'll see if we can add to it. And I know that your husband wants to be sealed to you. We'll save a place for you in the temple. We'll leave the light on. The next night, my wife says, I'm ready for the discussions. On September 23, 2017, Susan was baptized, a member of the church. And there's a picture of Susan and Dusty in their whites. Obviously, he baptized her, and they're flanked by two Mormon missionaries who must have been the ones who taught her the missionary discussions. That's a real nice picture. I'm happy to report that I'm still doing better in the hair department than Dusty, who is totally bald. Finally now, this section, Inspiring Others. While Dusty's story has inspired those close to him, it has also touched thousands across the world in immeasurable ways. Well, it touched me in an immeasurable way, too, because how crazy is this? 
that we go from the time in the 1980s where he leaves the church. I'm total Mormon apologist. I'm total TBM. I'm trying to get him back. I fail. And I go through a process where I end up broadcasting behind enemy lines as Radio Free Mormon. And he goes through the opposite process where he comes back to the church. And now he's giving firesides about coming back to the church. And his story is being told in general conference by Elder Uchtdorf. Talk about a reversal of fortunes. We are like ships that pass in the night. So during this month of April of last year, 2019, not only do I find out that my missionary companion, Elder McKay, is now a 70 in the church, I find out that my best friend from the 1980s, Dusty Smith, who left the church and I was not able to save and rescue, went on to become extremely hostile to the church and then ended up coming back to the church. And his story was even told in General Conference in October of 2016, a talk that I probably heard when President Uchtdorf was giving it with no idea whatsoever that the guy he's actually talking about and giving the fake name of David was actually my dear friend from my college days. So I raise one glass to you, Elder McKay, and I raise another glass to you, Dusty Smith. You have both traveled a long way by very different routes to get to a place that I am never going to be again. And maybe that's why it was that learning about both of these stories back in April of last year, around the very same time, filled me not only with a sense of nostalgia, but also with a sense of sadness, and even melancholy. And why it is I've titled this episode, Take Me Home, Country Roads. So I guess all I can say is, congratulations to both of you. I wish you all the best. Well, that's about all I have for tonight. Remember, in the middle of this worldwide pandemic, wash your hands frequently with soap and hot water, stay away from crowds, Maintain good social distancing of at least six feet from the nearest person. If you have to cough, cough into your elbow and not upon your neighbor. And together, we will lick this coronavirus. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is old there. Older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. Country roads take me home to the place I belong, West Virginia. in my Yesterday